the reading of the Scriptures. I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles, I trust you have them, to Romans 11. We're reading verses 25 to 32. So uh, hear uh, now the Word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my mind, one of the great uh, compelling uh, issues in life is uh, understanding uh, God's saving purposes and how he implements them and for whom he does it. Uh, the how he implements them and for whom he does it is uh, a source of great controversy in the church. Shouldn't be, but it's like many things in life, great disagreements. Uh, Christians disagree uh, how God does what he does. Um, churches disagree. Denominations disagree. Uh, many denominations uh, at one point of time in their confessional statements were uh, in concord with how God does it and for whom he does it, but now they, uh, like so much in life, people wander. But, uh, but nevertheless, in uh, these chapters before us, I, I believe that the Apostle Paul was quite clear. And he's telling us that the hardening of uh, Israel is only partial uh, and that the elect of Israel will come to Christ and none of them will be lost. Just as God's saving purposes have reached to the nations, God will continue to save ethnic Jews. As you know, the context of Romans chapter 9 to 11 is God is dealing with the hardening of Israel. If you recall from the Gospels, they rejected His Son, if you call from the prophets, uh, that's the cause of judgment. Anytime you reject uh, the Word of God or God's saving purposes, uh, judgment is immediate, even though not fully implemented until the eternal state. But nonetheless, Israel rejected, uh, as a nation, rejected uh, the Savior. And so God hardens it. The promise here is it's only uh, partial uh, and it's not total. And that God will continue to save the elect from among the nation. 
And so uh, the hardening is partial and God continues to save. The great remainder of God's uh, grace, even though when we reject God, uh, his saving purposes continue unabated, continues to save. Uh, in speaking uh, to the predominantly uh, Gentile church in Rome, uh, Paul wants to inform them about a particular mystery. Uh, the mystery is uh, God's eschatological fulfillment of saving Gentiles and Jews, and not only saving them, but that Gentiles share equally in the end-time purposes of God. Many people, again, uh, disagree here. They diverge. They say, well, God deals with Gentiles in this way, and at a future time, he will deal with Jews differently. I think Paul is quite clear. Eschatological fulfillment of God's saving purposes, that he deals with all men the same. Ethnicity never comes into play. No longer Jew or Gentile, or male or female, or slave or free. It's in Christ. It's always been that way and will always be that way. Uh, the purpose of his instruction is to uh, check their pride. We know from the context that pride has come into this Gentile church. Uh, he does not want them to be wise in their own estimation. Uh, the Gentile church knows that God is predominantly saving Gentiles. And so, what's the natural response of Gentiles? Well, we're better than Jews. That's why he's saving us. Well, of course, that is entirely false. Uh, God doesn't save anyone based on the fact that they estimate that they're better than someone else. I mean, that's folly and presumption. Uh, God saves according to his eternal purposes. And, of course, no one is better than anyone else. And so he, he's checking their pride. And it, it is, I think, a marvelous reminder. I mean, even as Christians, sometimes we can get full of ourselves, think we're better than someone else, uh, think that our families are better than someone else, or our educational accomplishments are better, uh, we're a bit smarter, but none of that counts before God. It's all His sovereign grace. Uh, God doesn't take notice in his saving purposes of our human accomplishments. Because it's not based on our human accomplishments, it's based upon the accomplishments of his son. And so, it's good to remember as Christians, be very careful of pride, be humble. And uh, when we, as we so often do, think that, well, if the Armenians were only as smart as we were, just to be careful, be wise. Uh, because God is saving Gentiles by His sovereign grace and power alone. And there is no hierarchy or status. Uh, the only key in the text before us is God's mercy. God is merciful. Uh, and by the way, if you understand that His mercy is the key and His mercy alone, solely and entirely, then it immediately checks your pride. It causes you to be humble. And 
Humility and virtue are essential to the Christian faith. And what causes in the Christian life virtue and humility? Sound theology. Uh, I say that because, again, churches diverge here. Uh, many churches, that we want to get in theology. That's for guys that go to graduate school only. No, we, we want to keep it simple. Well, certainly Paul isn't keeping it simple. Uh, um, we, we have to understand that theology because it, it, is, it is the mother of virtue, which is an essential aspect of the Christian faith. Uh, and so the hardening is partial until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. <clears throat> Uh, a lot of biblical scholars uh, give this an eschatological significance. Uh, I do not. I refers to me to the entire gathering of Gentiles from among the nations. And that that program of God is racing to fulfillment. He's gathering the elect from among the nations. Uh, and parallel to this, I think contextually parallel to this, in verse 26 is the phrase, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, in the same manner that God saves Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. Again, there's not two peoples of God. There's one tree of God's eternal purposes. Different branches, I grant you that. Uh, Gentiles don't replace Israel, but the key is there's one tree the eternal promises of God. Uh, so what does it mean all Israel will be saved? Well, again, we always go to the context. Context is always going to tell us. Uh, I would suggest to you, even though this, again, disregarded by many, uh, vehemently rejected by many Christians and denominations, the all Israel is all elect from within the nation. But why do I say contextually that is Paul's uh, truth for us? Let's look at, in the context, Romans chapter 9 to 11. Let's turn back and turn to uh, Romans chapter 9. Let's read verse, verse 6. Really, this entire section of 9 to 11 is based on this one this one verse, uh, like a spool of thread. Uh, 9-6 is the spool. The rest of the chapter to the end of chapter 11 is just simply pulling, pulling thread from that spool. So it's not as though the Word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there's a true Israel. And how is that true Israel defined? Well, the same way Gentile Christians are defined, all who come to Christ. That's true Israel. Let's look at 9.16. So then, it does not depend upon the man who wills and the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. And we know from chapter 9, he doesn't have mercy on every Every 
Jew. Let me think of the context. Uh, Ishmael. His father was Abraham. I mean, that's what all Jews said in the days of Jesus. We're, our father is Abraham. We're, we're in, buddy. We're in like Flint. God's going God's to save us all because Abraham is our father. Well, he didn't save Ishmael. i just give you one, but think of Esau. Let's look at uh, chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. What is the divine purpose to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So is he saving all Israel? No, he's going to save a remnant. It was never his intention to save all Israel. Only his intention to save a remnant according to his gracious choice. Now, the word choice is a cognate of the word for election. My how churches argue over that. Now, perhaps they should. But the Bible clearly proclaims that God chose us in eternity past. That doesn't create humility in all of us, then something indeed is wrong. The point of doctrine is to humble us and to rely solely entirely on the mercy of God. So it's a remnant. Uh, contextually, in chapter 11, days of the prophet, 7,000. Again, as you know, I see that as a figurative number, a multiple of 7 and 10. So a great number. Uh, we don't know. Uh, precisely what that number was, but we know just a remnant according to God's election. Uh, Elijah was complaining. He was kind of whining, as we do as Christians sometimes. I'm the only one left, God. If they take my life, if Jezebel gets me, then your purposes will have failed. God gently corrects him. No, I've got plenty more than you. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 28, um, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So he still has a beloved remnant in the nation today and tomorrow and up until the time that Christ comes. He has a beloved and he's going to save them. Based on what? His eternal promises to the patriarchs. God promised Abraham. And God's going to fulfill that promise. Why is that? Because the Word of God cannot fail, 9-6. So the text is the certainty of results of a divine process, meaning that none of the elect of all the nations can be lost because of the certainty of God's eternal promise. And therefore, all Israel is a reference to the entirety of the elect within the nation. Uh, many, again, take this as a reference to literally all Israel and some 
futuristic revival. Uh, great arguments over that. Covenant theology, dispensational theology. Um, this text suggests to me that there is not a national salvation. There is a grafting in again of the natural branches onto the covenant tree of the promises of God. And just as God did not save every Jew in the Old Testament, neither will He save every Jew in the time of the Apostle Paul, and neither will He today or tomorrow, but He will save all His own until He comes again. And the saving process is in. And this is highlighted, I think, in 11.26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. New American Standard reads thus, I think in this way, or in this manner, all Israel will be saved. And what manner is that? The same manner in which he saved Gentiles. It's the greater realization the manner in which he saves. In other words, uh, the elect remnant from within the nation of Israel will be saved in the same way Gentiles are saved. Namely, faith alone in Christ alone. Numbers and time are not specified. The manner is. And that is the essential of our text the mercy of God to His own. What is specified is the way, and that way is God's grace in His Son. No other way. It is an excellent reminder, I think, of the Gospel. That we will never be good enough. Thank God it's not based on that based upon God's mercy in the gospel. Uh, Paul quotes uh, two Old Testament texts to document the manner or how he does it. Uh, in this particular context, the manner in which he's going to save a remnant from within the nation of Israel. The first is from Isaiah 59, uh, verse 20, and the first part of verse 21. And that is quoted in verses 26 and the first part of 27. Let me just read it. And thus all Israel shall be saved just as it is written. In other words, the word of God is going to be fulfilled. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. Paul is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The context is a messianic promise that God will raise up his own mediator as a divine warrior to effect redemption and a new covenant. Think the word of God. It's majesty throughout the centuries running to ground by his promises. The Old Testament reads a deliverer will come to Zion. Paul changes the uh, Hebrew text to read from Zion. Why does he do that? Because it's happened. Christ has come. 
that promise in Isaiah has its beginning fulfillment in our Savior. And Zion, or Jerusalem, has been displaced from the geographic location is Israel to heaven. And that's why Paul changes from Zion because of displacement. Jerusalem is no longer a geographic reality. It's a heavenly reality. Remind you of this uh, because the argument over this <laughs> rages. Galatians 4.26 using Paul to affirm what I've just said. Paul says, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. How can Paul say that? I mean, Jerusalem was a city in the days of the Apostle Paul. Paul just changes the reality from geography to heaven. The Jerusalem above. Notice what follows. She is our mother. The saving graces from heaven come and save God's own. It's incredible. The power of heaven to invade humanity and together its sons and daughters. Jerusalem above. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 the author of the book says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have come to the heavenly Zion because it came for you. Gathered all of its sons and daughters. That's why uh, it's not a place of geographic uh, issue. Uh, I don't look to some great event to occur. city of Jerusalem, the literal city, I look to heaven. That's where our hope is. That's where the power is. And that's where God's uh, saving purposes are dispatched to run to ground. All who are on its rolls I don't know who are on the rolls, but I know how. By Christ alone. So, Christ is the greater fulfillment of the prophet. As the deliverer, he will deal with sin and remove ungodliness from Jacob and effect forgiveness. And this is God's covenant with Abraham and the patriarchs. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 21. And it perhaps alludes uh, to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and the greater reality that God will simply write it on their hearts. Promise of the new covenant is, well, uh, you failed in the old covenant, so I'm going to write this covenant on your hearts to secure perpetual faithfulness on your part. Uh, think virtue and humility. Uh, 
be very careful at looking at someone and saying, well, if you only kept God's word like I did. No, if you're a Christian, you keep God's word because he wrote it on your hearts. Simply as divine power, not because you were better or smarter. Just the new covenant, the grace of God. And the covenant secures perpetual for faithfulness. Not perfection, uh, we still deal with sin. Uh, but perpetual faithfulness. And that remnant among Israel will never fail again. And neither will the elect from the nations ever fail again. We will continue faithful until Christ comes again. Uh, the phrase in Romans 11, 27b, when I take away their sins, uh, comes from Isaiah 27, 9. The context is the ingathering of Israel by forgiveness and pardon and the removal of idolatry. And all of this, again, is inaugurated by the first coming of Christ. This is what God did, and this is how He does it. Takes away sin and affects repentance. Uh, that, again, is another source of contention in the church. And, by the way, it was in the first church in the book of Acts, was it not? Gen uh, Jewish Christians were saying, what is this news about Gentiles coming to faith? And Peter preaches a sermon on it. James preaches a sermon on it. Paul preaches a sermon on it. And then they finally get it. And they say to themselves, well, so God has given the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. And they finally got it. I'm not quite so sure why we continue to muck it up today, but notice the subject and the verb. God grants repentance. He is the one who affects it and brings it to pass. So think virtue and humility, compassion, understanding. It's all based upon God's sovereign will and purposes and the fact that He gave me mercy. The gospel. Occasionally I'm reminded that maybe someone in the congregation that says, well, I'm going to get there by my efforts. I'm going to make myself good enough. And you cannot. He can and does by Christ. His saving purposes. That is the point of the incarnation. He came to save in His Son. Because we cannot save ourselves. And Paul is explosive of this reality. Notice verse 29. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. It's a figure of speech. I believe. Gifts and calling. Technical word is in diatus where two ideas are, pardon me, two words reference one idea, two for one. The word gifts comes from the word for grace. Grace of God. And the word calling is a cognate of the word for election. 
we might compress it and say God's eternal purposes to save by His mercy in Christ. No other way. That's how He's always done it. It's the way He did it in the Old Testament. It's the way He did it in the days of the apostles. And that's how He's doing it today. He is continuing to save according to His eternal purposes a remnant from among the nations and attaching them by sovereign power to the promises to Abraham. Promises of God to Abraham. It's eternal, immutable, and God implements it in time based upon those saving purposes. Let's look at an illustration of this in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Verse 9. The elector singing a song. 24 elders. This is the song. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seal, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That includes all Gentile nations and the nation of Israel. He purchased. They're going to come. He's going to apply it to them by the Great Spirit. Uh, Thus, it is a fulfillment of God's grace to save from eternity past all of the elect from within the nation. In verses 30 to 32, God is affecting that end time salvation of all without distinction from Gentiles and from the nation of Israel. So the process of saving continues. By the way, if you are here and you do not know the Savior, that is your only hope. God continues to save. And He will not stop saving until He comes again. And then it is over with. Again, churches disagree here. Catholic Church believes that the saving purposes of God continue even after death. I don't know how they get that, but they do. I'm sure they have great eminent scholars that can point to some proof. I don't think they can from the Scriptures, but nonetheless they do. The reality of Paul is that the saving purposes of God continue this very day. He's gathering his own and none will be lost. And it's in the same way, for the same reason, by the same power, and with the same object, faith in Christ. Paul sets up here a chiasmus uh, between disobedience and mercy, and between Jews and Gentiles. First, he deals with Gentiles. He says, you were disobedient. But because of Jewish disobedience, you obtained mercy. Another translation might be, you received mercy. By the way, it's instructive to me that that phrase, you received mercy, is just simply one word. It's the parsing of one word in the Greek text that's in the passive voice, meaning that God acted upon you to come to Christ and to receive His mercy. And if God doesn't act, 
nothing happens. And when he does, you come. Jewish rejection of the gospel and hardening causes the gospel to go international. Because God is not stopped by the disobedience of anyone. He continues to run his purposes. Secondly, he deals with Jews. Because of the mercy shown to Gentiles, Jews may also now obtain mercy. Same verb, same voice, passive voice. Gentiles obtain mercy. Jews obtain mercy. The tandem is divine providence. Turning to Gentiles to save and using the latter to provoke Jews to jealousy so that he might save Jews. The how is critical. It's always critical that we should understand how. Well, again, as I've suggested time and again in our lesson this morning, denominations and churches disagree. Many, many Christians today believe that we participate in saving purposes of God. Not sanctification, we'll get to that, chapter 12, verse 1, but in the saving purposes of God, in justification. I think Paul is clear. Only by His grace we cannot participate because we were dead in sin. So how do we come to faith? Well, if you're dead in sin, it must be a divine power comes onto the scene, operates on your heart, gives you a new heart so that you might call upon the Savior to receive Him. In other words, He regenerates you and the result is you believe in the Savior. The how is critical. Uh, and He saves in always this way among Gentiles and Jews, namely, the mercy of God. Not mercy and your works. Solely, entirely, is mercy. By the way, it's essential, I believe you understand that, to provoke virtue and humility and the praise of God. The mercy of God. What is, what is mercy? It's an attribute of God. Mercy is God's relief in this life for the elect from the vagaries and miseries of the fall. I, I love the shorter catechism. The fall brought misery into this world. Incredible hardship and breaking of hearts and tears and... Uh, We were introduced to the miseries of the fall by our first forefather, Adam, which all of us in this room are the product and progeny of. And when he fell, we fell in him. And when he fell, all of the miseries of that fall, the curse and its effects fall upon all mankind. But God acts in mercy because He's merciful. In His mercy, He saves and rescues His own from the second death. You and I as Christians face all the miseries of the fall. 
We, we get diseases. Uh, we bury our loved ones. We don't escape anything. But one thing we do escape is the second death. Great illustration, the nation of Israel, land of Goshen, because of the Passover lamb and his blood, the angel of death passed over them. The angel, angel of death passes over us. It wants us, but it will not get us because of Christ. That's mercy. That's the mercy of God. Alone. Let's look at a couple of texts here. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is God so blessed? Because He is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Father of mercies meaning that He is the origin and the source he is the headwaters of all mercy. If you were to trace the mercies of God throughout all of history, you would eventually get back where? To heaven and the grace of God and God the Father, who is the Father of every mercy that attends to us, to give us relief from the effects of the fall, and certainly the second death. Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Uh, if you ever read Ephesians chapter 1, you know he doesn't love everybody. He loves his own. And he saves his own. And none of them are lost. If you disagree with that, I just encourage you to reread Ephesians chapter 1. But nonetheless, it is a key to Christian virtue, of which paramount is humility and trust and dependence upon God's mercy to sustain and keep us until He comes again. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord, Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. If you don't know the Savior, call upon Him. He is rich in mercy. So it's, a, it's a bank that will never close. The teller to that window never puts that little sign This window is now closed. That's where you go. That's where you go, and that's who you go. And if you go anywhere else, you've rejected the mercies of the eternal God. God is the source, the headwaters, no other person to repair to. All of us have the same compelling need for mercy and relief from the effects of the fall. And God acts to save from within the nations and continues to do so until Christ comes again. I believe that is the greatest, single most possession in all of life. I understand. Because I understand myself. We all want for things. 
want for this. The mercies of God would attend to you all the days of your life. Do you know the Savior? They will. Based on you? No. Based on Him. And whether it be Jew or Gentile, uh, He purchased men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He purchased. Uh, many churches believe that we participate somehow in that grand scheme. Uh, I'm kind of a simpleton. I just go back and look at the subject and the verb. Let that define our theology. He purchased the Father of mercies, the gift of the Son. Greatest possession. I know we all want for someone to pay our electric bill and, uh, I don't know, for government to bail us out of our student loans. In my case, a 58 Corvette. I, mean, I, I don't know what it is you want. Vacation in Europe. This is the greatest possession. And without it, you might be as rich as Elon Musk, three times over, but you really are a pauper. Because God's mercy is the essential. Same God, same way, same salvation, same inheritance. And this mercy is available to all, and those who do not repair to it will be lost forever. And the miseries of the fall and the final reality of the second death will close in upon them the moment their eyes close in death. Terrifying thought. The good news is the gospel that God continues to save. We now know how he does it. The mercies of God in Jesus Christ. I trust that you understand that now, perhaps a bit better, because of uh, the words of the Apostle in the Book of Romans. And because in a greater sense, the Spirit of God gives you understanding, because that too is a gift from God. Understanding. Not our intellect, but His grace. Opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And if you do not know him, may he open your eyes to see the beauty of the mercies of Christ.